I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The word of the Lord. Thank you, brother. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, we thank you for the reading of your word, and God, we now ask that you would awaken our sleepy souls to hear from you this day. We are needy, so we pray, God, that you would speak to us as we look into your word, and we thank you for it. In your son's name, amen. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is remembered for many things, depending upon the person you're talking with. In 1741, he preached what is, at least to many, perhaps the most famous sermon in the English language, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He's also remembered as an author, a theologian, a pastor, a leader of the Great Awakening, a missionary, a university president. But I think it's also important when we look back on Edwards or any other historical hero that we also look into the times where they were tested, the times where their metal was visible to all of those who were watching. In 1750, his church fired him over his views of communion. And it wasn't an abrupt, rushed, called business meeting. This had been festering for a few years by the time they fired him. He was fired in 1750, but you can actually go back to at least 1748 to see the the germination of the discord in the congregation. He had perhaps made a pastoral mistake, probably unintentional, but he publicized the names of children that he wanted to see about a certain scandal in town, and by publicly naming children... He was, inadvertently perhaps, attaching their names to the scandal. And in doing so, it alienated the families of those children from their pastor. 
other divisions began to emerge. Some of his influential supporters passed away. And all of these things were brewing, which sort of allowed the fertile soil to be there for some particular families to struggle with their pastor, to bring up issues. No matter how long you look at someone, you can find imperfections. In December of 1748, Edwards told someone that they must profess Christianity before they could take communion. That sounds simple to us. It's certainly biblical, but it went against the fray. It went against the tide. His influential grandfather, who had also pastored this church, had taught something quite different than what Edwards was teaching. In fact, Edwards for a while had believed what his grandfather had taught. Edwards was asserting, if you will, pastoral authority. The applicant talked to others about this. He refused to profess Christianity. He was happy to profess godliness, but not Christianity. Think about that this afternoon. He withdrew his request for membership in the church, and this caused the controversy to brew even more. A few months later, in February of 1749, he proposed to his church that he would preach through a series of sermons outlining his change of heart on this critical issue. Who is allowed to take communion? He proposed preaching this series of sermons, but the leaders instead said, no, we would rather see it in print. Books can't be written overnight, at least not good ones. And so this took a period of time for Edwards to write out his views. In the meantime, he wrote a letter to John Erskine in Scotland. And one little portion of that letter conveys to us how enraged this controversy was, not only in his church, but in the surrounding community. He says to Erskine, and I quote, There is great uneasiness among my people and has filled all the country with noise. In August, the book was written, published, and presented. And what I love so much about Puritan books is that the title tells you the book. You can go to Barnes & Noble today, you can pull out a great book, and the title tells you very little. Even some of the greatest authors, William Faulkner, go read The Sound and the Fury. The title doesn't tell you really what the book is about. Here's the title of his book, An Humble Inquiry into the Rules of the Word of God Concerning the Qualifications Requisite to a Complete Standing and Full Communion in the Visible Christian Church. That's just the title. People read the book, a few months go by, controversy intensifies. In February 1750, he decided to lecture on his views on Thursday afternoons at 2 o'clock. They were well attended, but not by the people of his church, by people in the community. In June of 1750, there was a series of divisive church meetings led by councils of different pastors, and they sought what the church wanted to do with their pastor. Only 10% of the church's members voted for him to remain. Edwards was fired. Once they fired him, he preached what we commonly call as the farewell address, a beautiful sermon. And his text was 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 14, verse 14. 
as also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. How remarkable is it to preach to the people that just fired you a text where you refer to them as your rejoicing. It's remarkable, this text, the gravity of his pastoral care, the tenderness of what we often want to qualify as a rigid man. As providence would have it, he continued to preach after they fired him for 15 more months in the same pulpit. My grandfather told me all the time growing up, don't ever quit your job until you have another one to go to. You never hear someone say, don't fire a guy unless you have a replacement. They had no one to preach, and Edwards continued to live in the parsonage, preaching for 15 months. How? Can you imagine doing that? Facing your executioner, so to speak? One of his friends, David Hall, wrote in his diary the following about Edwards when he was fired. And I quote, I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week, but he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future but a present good, even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismissal. End quote. He appeared like a man of God. How? How do we, how do you and I appear as men and women of God in the face of public ridicule, of suffering in any way it can come at us? How do we stand with this sort of stature? My dear brothers and sisters, in our text we find Paul appearing like a man of God. We see in him Principles that we can apply to each one of our lives, no matter what baggage we come in here with, whatever our testimony may be, we find Paul as a model for us to be men and women of God. So this morning I have three points, three simple points of our text, and I'll give those to you now in case you're a note taker, and as we unpack them, perhaps you might want to jot down a few other notes. The first thing we're going to see is that we need to resist the applause of man. The second thing we're going to see is that we should rejoice in the sovereignty of God. And number three, we should pursue contentment. Or if you want to keep an alliteration of all this, run after contentment. First of all, let's notice how we must resist the applause of man. I must go on boasting, verse 1. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And then Paul begins to give us this eyewitness scene, if you will, of something that was remarkable. And he unpacks it for us. And in these verses, Paul is continuing a boast that he began in the previous chapter, in chapter 11. In chapter 10, Paul begins to really just open his heart, lay bare all the struggles that he's had, the shipwrecks, the beatings, the public ridicule, just sort of letting it open. Guys, I'm suffering, and I've suffered physically, mentally, spiritually, relationally. Chapter 11, 
he's going full force to confront those who are undermining his ministry. In verse 11 of chapter 12, he sort of groans, doesn't he? Look there. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. Question. How have the Corinthians forced Paul to boast? If you'll recall... Paul labored among these these people. He loved them. But as is often the case, when the gospel is preached, Satan does his bidding. The enemies crept in. And they came in and began to peel apart, pick apart the good of Paul's ministry. They sought to distort his message by destroying his credibility. The false teachers boasted about their credentials. They had their resume on file. Look, look look here, look at what I've done. They boasted about their financial security, their oratorical skills, their persuasion. They boasted about their visions that they had received from God. They boasted about how God's favor had been upon them. Can't you see how crippling it would be to Paul's credibility that his opposition could lay out all the things in their favor and they didn't have any of that data on Paul? I mean, this is marketable, isn't it? Think of how one could package these acclaims and build a flourishing ministry. At least in the ways you and I would describe in our day and age what a flourishing ministry is. It gives these so-called super apostles a way to draw a crowd. Dear friends, you can take any normal statement and add the qualifier, the Lord told me, and all of a sudden you've elevated your credibility to your hearers. The false teachers were doing that sort of thing. They had an authority that others didn't have because they were building and basing their influence off off of what they told their hearers God had told them. And the Corinthians ate this up. Crumbs and all. They loved it. We have had visions. Paul hasn't had any visions. Can't you see that you should be listening to us? Paul is old news. He's yesterday. We are current. And with the heart of a tender pastor, Paul knew that a rejection of him was a rejection of the message he had delivered to them. So Paul discussed visions. Verse 1, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul says here, he was taken to the third heaven. What he also calls in our text, paradise. We need to unpack that for just a moment. In Paul's context, every commentator will tell you this. There is this understanding that heaven is spoken of at least in three ways. The first heaven, if you will, is the observable sky where birds fly, where clouds float, where fireworks go to display their temporary flashes and sizzle. There's the second heaven, which refers to the sun and stars and moons. I guess all of you will pay attention tomorrow to this part of heaven. I'm referring to the eclipse that everyone keeps talking about. The third heaven 
was God's presence, synonymous with paradise, the the dwelling place of the Lord. Paul says in verse 4, he heard things while he was there that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Paul struggles to find the words to describe what he saw, and he's on a divine gag order not to even talk about it. This is impressive. The false teachers can't compete with this. So you can imagine the Corinthians thinking to themselves, thinking to themselves, Paul, why didn't you tell us about this? Why have you kept this from us? Why don't we know about this trip you took to the third heaven? You've been silent about this. Verse 6, though I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, listen carefully, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul doesn't want the attention that his experience would bring from the itching ears of the Corinthians. He doesn't want them to make much of him, which is why he speaks of it in the third person. Did you notice that? Who talks this way? One commentator says this, and I quote, speaking of Going to heaven in the third person, this commentator says, and I quote, this literary technique enabled him to avoid suggesting that he was in any sense a special kind of Christian. The vision and revelation had been given to him as a man in Christ, not as an apostle, or not as a persecuted believer who merited a reward for service rendered or suffering endured. Do you see that? He's just a man in Christ. He's not putting his apostle card on the table. I've been suffering for Jesus, so that's why I got to go. It's not what he's doing at all. He doesn't want people to know about this. How different Paul is from the self-proclaimed temporary visitors of heaven today. It's not uncommon for people today to write a story about going to heaven, walking the streets of gold, talking with the saints, hanging out with Peter on the back nine of heaven's golf course, only to return back to earth, write a book, and sell it to you for $19.99. People buy this stuff. Movies are made about this. Brothers and sisters, don't waste your money. In fact, I'll give you a fancy theological word to apply to those kinds of books. Rubbish. It's pure rubbish. Paul could have written books. He could have made a lot of money. He could have had his best life now. But he didn't. This this has to fall on us and make us think. He had the resume to show everyone to elevate his credibility, which they've been tarnishing. And he hasn't been doing that. What is it about the world's applause that compels us to seek the vain glories from other people? Brothers and sisters, whose approval are you living for today? What's getting you going these days? Is it the fleeting approval you can receive on social media? All of us know the hyper-connectivity of our age. All of us are aware that the little computers we carry around in our pockets can be great sources of spiritual danger. 
Is your joy, is your popularity, is what's getting you going these days tied to a social media handle where you project the best version of yourself? And yet, if we're honest, all of us know deep down inside in the caverns of our hearts that the broken narratives of our lives cannot be reduced to the hyper-edited versions of ourselves that we put on display hoping to gain the fleeting praise of the virtual window shopping known as social media. It will never do it for you. American, we are drunk on American narcissism. And at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, the only opinion about you that matters is God's. We can be honest this morning and say that you and I do crave things. We crave status and greatness and power and control and popularity and acceptance. And we can couch those things in spiritual terms and make them sound very godly, can't we? Paul knows this about himself. He knows that tendency in his own heart. And he knows that he could show that to the Corinthians and he could show that to his opposition to really elevate himself. Don't you remember how he began this letter? Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Then he makes this beautiful statement. For you stand firm in your faith. Paul wants the Corinthians to rest in Christ. Not themselves, not the false teachers, not even in his ministry. We want your joy to be in Christ. Your faith to be strong, anchored. Not in the approval of man. Now, we have to be careful here, don't we? Are we saying that we should resist the praise of man in every sense? Are we saying that we can't encourage a brother or sister in Christ? Of course not. Are we saying that, listen carefully, we can't receive encouragement Or affirmation from brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course not. In fact, we're encouraged to do those things. In the context of the body of Christ, of course. The local church. Brothers and sisters, we must take an honest evaluation of our hearts. And see the questions that we crowd our minds with. Do I look okay? Will I be noticed? Will he ask me out? Will I be liked? Am I accepted? Do I have enough friend requests? Am I good enough? Am I the right size? Did he or she like my status? Does this photo make me look good? For you students about to enter into another academic year, do you realize how paralyzing the praise of man will be to your Christian witness? It is a bondage. It's slavery. In every way you can be slaved, physically tormenting, spiritually tormenting, relationally tormenting, emotionally tormenting, it is bondage to live for the praise of man. Dear Christian, be reminded today of the immeasurable love for Christ that you have in that while you had no status, Christ died for you. When you had no resume, He loved you anyway. You are His. You are loved. He rejoices over you. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in these things. But if you're here today without Christ, 
May I tell you, dear friend, that you'll never receive in the praise of man what is yours to have in the love of God. Come to Christ today. Repent, trust in him. And find a fountain that never runs dry. Brothers and sisters, we must boast in the Lord. Number two this morning, we must rejoice in the sovereignty of God. We must rejoice in the sovereignty of God. Paul says, verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Some of your translations use the word torment. To torment me. To keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest, may dwell on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, persecutions, hardships, calamities, For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is so amazing about this is how transparent Paul is. We don't naturally speak of ourselves these ways. We're very good at covering up everything that is even remotely close to being this visible with our weaknesses with others. This this section is on weakness. In the previous chapter, he He says, I'm talking like a madman as he displays all of these weaknesses. Let's be honest, my brothers and sisters, we we have to find these words a bit startling. They are counterintuitive to every fiber of our being. Who thinks this way? Don't we naturally do just the opposite of what he just did? When was the last time you updated your resume to highlight your weaknesses? I'll never be on time, boss. <laughs> Terrible with money. I love gossip. I love to play solitaire when you're not looking. I, can, I will watch Netflix all day long and you won't even know it. We never do that. What do we want? We want strength. We want physical strength. Emotional strength. Relational strength. Financial strength. We want to project strength. The Rock of Gibraltar. There's a reason why that's on a commercial. And not a cavern where you go to die. Yet we find Paul boasting in his weakness, content in his weakness, actually delighting in them. The key, I think, to understanding how Paul can feel this way, look this way, embrace weaknesses, is because he's viewing them through the lens of the sovereignty of God. You put your own selfish lens there, you'll never understand it. But if you look through the lens of God's sovereign will, it began, the clouds begin to dissipate. Paul sensed that his heart could do some devastating things to his walk with these revelations. Let me give you an illustration of that. Can you imagine being a fellow elder with Paul in a business meeting or perhaps an elders meeting where he's conceited. So just by way of crazy example, 
you're a fellow elder with Paul, you're at your Tuesday night elders meeting, and you say, Paul, brother, I've been praying, we have a discipleship issue in our church, I've been praying, studying the scriptures, and here's my plan, I think this will help our discipleship issues in our church. Paul says, well, brother, I too have been thinking about our discipleship problems, and I have a plan, and I think we should do this plan. But you say, but brother, look at mine, I really think it's good, let's at least consider it. How many times have you been to the third heaven? How many revelations have you had? Do you see what a conceited Paul could do with this kind of experience? Lord it over you, terrorize you, manipulate you. Paul knows his own heart. He realizes what would happen. So verse 7, so to keep me from being that way... Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, torment me, pummel me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Brothers and sisters, trust me, as a fellow struggler, there is no shortage of ink on this particular phrase, a thorn in the flesh. No shortage of sermons you can go listen to, I'm sure, about what people think this is. Some people categorize it as psychological issues. Perhaps Paul had a speech impediment. Perhaps he had um, he was un- an inability to deal with criticism. Some say it's a physical thing. That's where a lot of people go quickly on this. Maybe a nervous disorder. Somebody has said tuberculosis. How do they get that, right? Tuberculosis, rheumatism, (laughs) deafness. I've, I've even seen that. Malaria, epilepsy. The most frequent physical thing people will mention, however, is his eyes. Some type of ophthalmological issue. Some say it's spiritual. There's a Catholic version of this or a Catholic view which says perhaps he was dealing with sexual lust. Different kinds of trials. Luther and Calvin are very vague here. Various and sundry trials. Perhaps it was doubt. A debilitating doubt that's arresting him. Some may may say it's a focus on his opposition. John MacArthur does this. That there are these people who are trying to destroy his ministry. So MacArthur focuses on people. Friends, it doesn't really matter what the thorn was. And if we get caught up with that, we really miss what this text is about. It's not about a thorn. That's really not the whole intention here. We know this though. It's a chronic problem. It's painful. And it's not going away. That's what we know for sure. It is painful. It's always there. And it will not go away. In fact, if the thorn came after the revelation, he's had it for 14 years. So this is not Paul having a bad week and taking it out on people. This is a 14-year journey with Christ where he's searching for Christ to be present in his weaknesses. We don't know where it came from. Pardon me, we do know where it came from. It came from Satan, and in fact, he says it himself. Satan is crushing him. 
Satan is after him, target on the middle of his chest. The thorn was an evil of Satan, and it is the work of Satan. But there's more to this than just you know, talking it up to Satan being a bad guy and hating us. Certainly that's true, but there's more to it than simply that. We have here verse 7, look at the wording there, a thorn was given me. Commentators love to talk at this moment about what is called the divine passive. Ralph Martin in his commentary on Matthew, where he talks about the divine passive, says this. It's simply, God is the hidden agent behind events and experiences in human lives. End quote. God is behind the scenes, and He's working in human events and experiences. God is ultimately the ultimate source of what's going on with this thorn. How do we know that? Because Paul says that it's there to prevent him from being puffed up. Satan would want just the opposite, wouldn't he? Satan wants Paul to puff himself up. Satan wants Paul to find his pleasures inside, in himself. Don't you see God's care here? You see, friends, all things do work together for the good of those whom Christ loves and calls to himself. Even thorns. The thorns that dig in and cause pain don't give evidence that God isn't there, but rather prove to us that He is. He is there. Thorns hurt, though. And we need to be very real about that this morning. We can't gloss this over. The thorns that attach themselves to our lives hurt, they are painful. And you don't have to be a spiritual genius to know that. Thorns hurt. What does he do? He pleads with God. He pleads with God. Have you noticed the different ways you pray? I'm trying to teach my boys how to lead in prayer. So a lot of times at dinner, if I'm home for lunch or at dinner especially, I'll say, Joshua, would you please pray? Caleb, would you pray? And they've heard me do it a bunch. So they, they, I've sort of modeled it for them. And I can always tell when they're really hungry. Fork in one hand. Like a speedy prayer. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for our family. Thank you for this food. And before they can even say amen, the fork, you know. Like, you pray that way too. Don't think ill of my children, right? You've rushed through prayers. That's not the kind of prayer Paul is doing here. I pleaded with the Lord. Three times. This is the kind of prayer that the psalmist said, right? You, you stay up all night. You wet your bed with tears. Every emotion is here. God, take this away from me. Have you noticed how suffering drives you to God? Sort of the highway to get you there. Brothers and sisters, when we suffer, not only is it right to pray to our God, see that in the text, we should pray to God. We should actually, and we see in the text here, ask God to heal us. There's nothing in the world wrong with that. What does James say? If anyone is among you suffering, let him pray. If you're sick, go to the elders of the church and do what? Pray. 
It is good and right for you to take your burdens to the Lord, pray to him, your sovereign creator, your sovereign savior. He knows how to remove anything that's in your life. But sometimes he doesn't. A wise old man told me one time that it took him his whole life to realize that God answers prayers with a yes, a no, or a no, not yet. A yes, a no, or a no, not yet. Dear friends, God's no is not an indication or a reflection of his ill will toward you. In fact, his no is a conduit for his grace to be ever more real in your life. God's answer to Paul is grace. Paul thought the greatest need in his life was for the thorn to be removed. God knew that the greatest need in Paul's life was grace. And he's not just going to give him in small doses. I'm going to lavish you with grace. You will feel that the thorn is overcoming you, but my grace will overcome that. Oh, the millions of moments each day we don't realize. The oceans of God's grace we are swimming in. He owes you nothing. And yet look at all he gives us. God's answer to him is I have grace. He said to me, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast. How's he going to respond? I'm going to boast. All the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10 gives us a bit more detail on what the weaknesses are, right? Four words, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. Some of you are facing suffering this morning. You did not intend to be or ask to be unemployed. You didn't ask for public ridicule. You didn't ask for sickness. You didn't ask for wayward children. You didn't ask for financial hardship. And you have prayed and you have wet your bed with tears. And sometimes God removes those thorns, doesn't He? And we rejoice. But some of you are experiencing the ongoing struggle of the presence of the thorn. In your life. My friend, I just want to ask you have you stopped to discover the grace that is yours to be had in Christ? I will say this one of the graces that God has given you, don't neglect this, is the body, the church. Lone Ranger Christianity is suicide, you'll never last. You will be swept away either by your own sinful tendencies or the lust of the flesh to go pursue the world's agenda. You must be, you should be in the body. You need a buttress, the church, to not only rejoice with you, rejoice with those who are rejoicing, but to bear one another's burdens. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those 
who are rejoicing. And no matter if you're weeping or rejoicing, you do it by recognizing the grace that is surrounding all of that. That is yours to be had. You know what this really gets down to is, is God trustworthy? Can I trust God? That's really the question underneath all of this. Can I take God at His word? Human history is littered with image bearers of the one true God whose testimony is one of struggling to trust God. You and I do it all the time. You did it this morning on your way here, perhaps. On a big scale, the whole, the whole Old Testament is about a group of people who can't trust, will not trust God. So they'll, they'll chase false idols. And our individual lives are proof, proofs of our inability to trust Him in and of ourselves. Do you sense this in your life? I want to encourage you this morning. God is trustworthy. You can trust Him. In fact, Paul has already told the Corinthians this very thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. Perhaps you read with tears as I did the recent reflection Johnny Erickson Tata did on the 50th anniversary of her accident which left her paralyzed. I don't have time to read all of this to you. Go to the Gospel Coalition's website. It was published on July the 30th. You, I, you just can't help but read this and weep. I want to quote from her, quote, recently I was at my desk writing to Tommy, a 17-year-old young boy who just broke his neck body surfing off the Jersey Shore. He's now a quadriplegic. He will live the rest of his life in a wheelchair without use of his hands or legs. When it comes to life-altering injuries, quadriplegia is catastrophic. Halfway through my letter describing several hurdles Tommy should expect in rehab, I stopped. I felt utterly overwhelmed thinking of all that lies ahead for him. I've been there. And even though half a century has passed, I can still taste the anguish. Hot, silent tears began streaming, and I choked out a prayer. Oh God, how will Tommy do it? How will he ever make it? Have mercy, help him find you. Like Tommy, I once was the 17-year-old who retched at the thought of living life without a working body. I hated my paralysis so much, I would drive my power wheelchair into walls, repeatedly banging them until they cracked. Early on, I found dark companions who helped me numb my depression with scotch and cola. I just wanted to disappear. I wanted to die. What a difference time makes. As well as prayer, heaven-minded friends, and the deep study of God's Word. All combined, I began to see there are more important things in life than walking and having use of your hands. It sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do now than be on my feet without him. Whenever I try to explain it, I hardly know where to begin. She goes on to say at length, 
this final statement that I'll mention. Suffering keeps knocking me off my pedestal of pride. It's taken her 50 years to say it this way. She's been saying it for a while now. Don't misunderstand me. Year 14, Paul is talking about this thorn and what it's been doing to him. Dear friends, our weaknesses are center stage for Christ to be exalted in our lives. Clear the stage. He's at work. Watch. Drink deeply from the well of Christ in your suffering. He's been there. He's tasted it. He has experienced it. He overcame it. He was victorious. So friends, we must resist the applause of man. We must rejoice in the sovereignty of God, thorns and all. And thirdly this morning, very quickly, we must pursue contentment. He says in verse 10, For the sake of Christ then, I am content. You and I live in a world, unshockingly right, that breeds discontentment. We are bombarded with messages that to be happy we need more things, less wrinkles, better vacations, fewer troubles, a younger wife. But ultimately, the problem is our sinful heart. We are discontented in our marriages, in our jobs, in our relationships, in our neighborhoods. You put anything there in the blank, and you can breed discontentment quickly there. I struggle with this all the time. All the time. And so do you. We can easily despair. But listen carefully. The Bible tells us not only that we must be content, we should pursue contentment. It's a journey. It's a place we're going Several hundred years ago, Jeremiah Burroughs referred to Christian contentment as a rare jewel. How do you get jewels? They don't just fall out of the sky. You don't just find them on the road. You dig for them. You search for them. You go after them. Pain and all. Patience and all. You search. You dig. You go after contentment. He says so many wonderful things in that little book. You ought to get it. One thing he says, a contented Christian is the one who best knows God's sovereignty and rest in it. A a contented Christian trusts God, is pure in heart, and is the one most willing to be used of God, however God sees fit. Now, I think one way for us to unpack this just for a few moments is to see how Paul addressed this to the Philippians. So, if you have your Bible, just quickly go to the letter Paul wrote to the Philippians, I want to mention just two texts to see how Paul speaks of this in even more depth. Certainly it's on the page in 2 Corinthians 12, but I want to see one contrast very quickly before we conclude. In Philippians 4, Paul says, verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Listen to these ranges here. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Twice in that statement, listen carefully, Paul said that he had to learn how to be content. He said it twice. 
I've learned what it means to be content. It doesn't come naturally. You don't come to a Bible study and leave with a contentment card. It's just not how it is. You pursue it. You go after it. It's a goal. We have a responsibility to learn contentment. One way I believe we can see this is to go back one more chapter. Go to Philippians 3. And notice what Paul says. I want you to see this distinction very quickly this morning. Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, listen carefully, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, the secret of contentment is that you have to mingle together a holy discontentment with the pursuit of contentment. Does that make sense? Philippians 3, I am pressing on. Forgetting what's behind me, I'm pressing on. I'm not satisfied with where I am. I want more of Christ. No matter what's coming my way, I want more Christ in my life. I want to know Him more. I want to experience His grace. I'm going to pursue Him, pursue Him, run after Him. Even, Philippians 4, if the circumstances of my contentment are hard. So on the one hand, Christian contentment is a discontentment, an awareness that says, I'm not satisfied, I want more of Christ, coupled with, no matter where I am on this journey, I'm content no matter the circumstances, thorns and all, good and bad, praise or ridicule. The contented Christian is the one who knows Christ, but who has a restless pursuit to know Him more. Don't be satisfied. Paul isn't satisfied in 2 Corinthians 12. He wants more grace. I boast of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ is on me. He can't manufacture that. He can't buy that. He can't go take it back from the the oppression. They don't have it. They're bogus. The only way to get power is through weakness. Has God, haven't you noticed this is always the way God works? This is nothing new. That God uses weakness to reveal his strength. Just go back and read why God chose Israel if you want. A narrative of that. Brothers and sisters, we must... Resist the praise of man. Again, that doesn't mean we don't encourage one another along the way. We must, even when it doesn't make sense, rejoice in the sovereignty of God. But we must be on an all-out pursuit, locked arm in arm with the church that we love and loves us, the body together under the teaching of our elders, united by faith, a faith family, Running after Christ together. Not being satisfied. If your spiritual life is flatlined, it is evidence to you that you aren't running hard after Christ. He hasn't left you. 
He has not stopped loving you and he has not stopped pursuing you. As I was thinking this morning on my way here and talking with Malachi actually before the service, I thought of Psalm 34. And I just want to read the first few verses there. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Friends, thorns are not. We magnify the Lord together as we are discontented where we are now, compelling ourselves to find contentment wherever the Lord may have us as we pursue Him year in and year out. May I just say for some of you who are older Christians in the room, do you realize how vital you are to the younger Christians in the room? Just read Titus. How Titus wanted the spiritual treasure that the older saints had to be invested in the younger saints. And he specifically talks about the experiences they've had. On this journey pursuing contentment, don't waste how God is using you, has worked in you, in the lives of your fellow church members. We're in this together as we seek Christian contentment coupled with our dissatisfaction with where we currently are. I think there's encouragement here. I think there's significant encouragement here. No matter what your struggle is this morning, Christ loves you, dear brother and sister. He has saved you. He has redeemed you. And His strength will be manifested in your weakness. Come to Him today. Just fall at His feet and say, Lord, work Your power through my weaknesses. If you were here today without Christ, I have to warn you, dear friend, the misery, the misery of disappointments will only continue until you find the one who can satisfy your soul, and that is Christ. Come to him today. Would you pray with me?